welcome once again to the Irish in Sweden podcast. Tis me, tis Philip O'Connor. Uh, still not in me hammock, still not anywhere near taking any sort of a summer vacation like you bowsies. I can hear you now out there on your boat in the archipelago and not a drop of running water to be seen and the batteries running down i hope you're having a magical time wherever you are in the summer jesus i was where was i the other day oh no i got an email the other day and it was one of those things it's like oh you know the the summer holidays are nearly over it's gone hang on now a second lads right some of us are only getting started some of us haven't even booked out some of us uh, have no idea what holidays actually means so um we're here putting together a podcast for the irish community because you could be sitting there in your hammock with nothing to do I'm sorry I let you down last week. Uh, it was mad. What with the Women's World Cup starting and all that kind of thing. I was beside myself. I was meeting myself coming back. And then there's the beautiful things that do be going on. When you think you have a few minutes. When you think that everybody has gone off to do that thing. And you go, oh yeah, no, I'll just I'll get stuck into that now. And, uh, but, but, I don't know, life intervenes. And you get a million and one things that uh, get in the way of doing those things. But th- th- that's just how it is. Uh, there was a whole bunch of Global Gale podcasts. Um, as I mentioned there, the Women's World Cup has started. Ireland got off to a great start. Lost narrowly. 1-0 to a penalty uh, in the first game but there's still plenty to play for and on the global gale podcast there is uh, there was a preview of that game with uh, some great interview guests probably worth listening back to that just for the crack of it anyway and then harji Johal was on there over the weekend telling us what we can expect from Ca- uh, from canada and he said kavanaugh i don't know what's wrong with me and then the bs uh, samuel from nigeria is going to be telling us all about what to expect from them in the final game so uh, the global gale will be pinging away there with a football focus for the next little while uh, but the irish and sweden podcast after a one week break is kind of back and we're kind of looking around for people again if you haven't heard the episode with anthony morrissey from a couple of weeks back go back and have a listen right it's one of the best conversations and i think that you know and i'm not just saying this to pat me on back but you get brilliant people on this podcast lads and it's not because anything i do whatsoever it's their stories and that kind of thing but there's some brilliant people and brilliant ideas and anthony's story i think is a really really good one and i think as you find yourself getting back to your desk now in august or early september or whenever you're heading back uh, he's one of those lads we can all learn a lot from around you know project management and marketing and sales and thinking and positivity and energy and all that kind of thing uh, and i'm delighted to say that i have a lot of contact with uh, anthony privately now um because he's helped me a little bit to grow the podcast audience as i say i've said it a thousand times i do believe that this is the future i do believe that these podcasts have value and if you believe that too uh, patreon.com forward slash arrowman in stockholm a five or a month i'll find a swish number at some point but the global gale one i really believe that that could be something there you know so anthony and i are going to work on that and see if we can bring it to a to a wider audience and you know hopefully people decide to support it because i do think that the work is worth doing and indeed worth paying for to give me more time to do it so yeah he's helped me with that and it's just it's brilliant to have somebody when you're used to working on your own as a freelancer and to be honest i like working on my own for the most part but no man slash woman is an island lads and we all need that feedback and we all need that help and sometimes we ask we need people to ask us the hard questions which Anthony is not averse to doing you know he'll say to you look at you know I think he came at me with one thing you know I gave him all the statistics for the podcast he's gone okay so some of these podcasts are really good but nobody's listening to them why is that <laughs> I was like okay fair enough you know so he wouldn't be allowed for sparing your feelings at all you know and you know generous he'll give you a credit and that kind of thing but boy geez you'll have to answer the hard questions for, uh, the hard questions when he's around and that's worth it you don't want you know to be Elon Musk at Twitter and have all these yes men and yes women just telling you that you're great and blowing smoke up your backside 
Anyhow, let us get into the meat and the drink of this week's episode. Uh, there'll be a very special episode coming up next week, and it's going to be to do with the Pride event, which will be taking the Pride Parade is taking place in Stockholm. Because for some reason, Sweden has to be Sweden, lads. So you'll have Pride for the whole month of June, but you'll have the actual parade in August. Why is that? I have no idea. Am I going to find out for you? No, I'm not going to do that at all. But what we will do is we will have an interview with somebody Irish who's going to be playing a fairly big part in that Pride Parade, together with the embassy and everybody else like that and we will be interviewing that person in the next week but this week um I had a little chat with Graham Butler, right? Now, Graham got in touch with me when I was talking to the various different microbrewers and, you know, Ivan Keane and Kieran Blake and all the lads at Dermot down below in the south of the country. The lads were making their own beers and selling them. And we've talked about uh, this thing of gorge for shelling, which literally means farm sales or being able to sell your produce from your farm, right? And that's the thing that people have brought up uh, instead of system it. So if you make these things on the premises, you'd be able to sell them. And Graham Butler, who is a a legal scholar down below in Denmark got in touch with me and he said that's not going to work and I went okay that's really bad news for some of the lads that we've had on the podcast but I'm intrigued Graham come on and explain to me why this is not going to work and the benefit of or the best bit of the whole thing is that Graham lives here in Sweden and he commutes over to the university in Denmark where he teaches and where he talks about law and EU law and other legal matters that are far too complicated for a simple North Dubliner like me to understand but Jesus he does a great job altogether lads of putting it in very plain language and explaining things so that you and I will be able to understand them. So now, from down below in uh, t- towards what's they call it? Is it Öresunds region? And is there around uh, Malmo and Copenhagen and that kind of thing? But you have the Öresunds tour, which goes over and back. But you have a little sort of a a train line that goes up the country there and that's where Graham lives and you'll hear him talking about his experiences of being down there and living down there and being one of these people who commute across the bridge which nobody wants to hear me talk about what he's going to tell you we may as well just let him tell you himself right this is it the chat with Graham Butler that we got sorted out a couple of weeks ago before everybody went on holidays and here it is for you now on the Irish in Sweden podcast I suppose the obvious place to start, because you're a man who moves around a little bit in the Nordic region, right? So are you in Sweden, or are you in Denmark, or are you in Ireland, or where are you at this moment in time, my friend? Uh, well, I don't, I don't move around that often. That that, that would be un- unkind to say. No, I, I first moved to uh, Scandinavia, if you will, 10 years ago. Um, and yeah, one thing led to another. I, I, met, I met a Swedish woman, and we live now here in small land in a, in a place called Vekwa. Um, um, but I, but the whole for most of that time, for most of the last ten years, I've lived in Denmark, and we moved from Denmark to Sweden last year. But given the fantastic world class infrastructure that we have here, I take the Orsunds talk from Vekwa. There's one train every hour leaving that brings you straight to through Copenhagen Airport and into Copenhagen Central Station, and from there, I, I, you many train connections you know so uh, I mean uh, I'm always amazed even though I've been here nearly 10 years at the amazing infrastructure whether you're around Malmo and the two or three ring roads from Copenhagen to the internal infrastructure with trains planes boats whatever it is I mean you really don't you can really get around here without a car now we of course we have a car Mm. having a small family means you need a car uh 
But yeah, most of the time I can, uh, when you live in a reasonably small city, like Fequa here is only 100,000 people, uh, no Irish community, to, but we do have an Irish pub called Slauncha. Uh, but the, the most well-known Irish pub in this part of the world would be Fagan's in Malmo, I guess. That's But the thing is, that if you want to go there for a point, it's going to be, I know the infrastructure is great in that country, but getting home is always a problem, you know? Um, sure. I think the last time actually I was down there, I think I when I was going to Malmo, I flew to Copenhagen and just got the train back across because that just worked Absolutely. out easier, which is fantastic. Absolutely, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I go to university events all over the Nordic states. I mainly, of course, I should say at the University of Southern Denmark and Odense. Um, but uh, anytime I've I've had to get get anywhere in southern Sweden, it, it was always you know we'll go to Copenhagen and get the train from there. I mean, the Sturup Airport from Malmo doesn't really work. Uh, but but I, I work in Denmark. I have this funny experience. My my professional life and uh, is is fully fully in Denmark uh, more or less, and that's where we've spent most of our time. Both our children were born there and so forth. Uh, but then it's just the 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 home life that is in Sweden, I guess. Uh, how does that work, right? Because, I mean, we're used to people living in Malmö and working in Copenhagen, but are you employed by, uh, is it the university in Odense, which is where you're uh, employed? Yeah. Yeah, that's where. Yeah, that's where. I've always worked in the in the Danish university sector. So I, I, historically, I would have just been uh, an, an EU citizen living and working in Denmark. That's no problem. And then when you want to go to go into a cross border arrangement, I mean. Uh, without getting too into the legal weeds of it all, I mean, w when you take up residence anywhere as an EU citizen, it's relatively straightforward. But it's there's a couple of different ways in which you qualify. So you could come in on your own two feet as a self-standing person with your own resources. You go in as a worker with an employment contract, or you go in as a spouse of a returning national. Uh, so I, I was myself, and my wife are married. We, she had left Sweden, went went to Denmark. That's where we met, and then she moved back to Sweden, and that that's the way I came in under because that's the easiest way to do it. But I also because I'm employed, I'm self sufficient. I could go in on other grounds as well. Um, and yeah, in in Sweden, Skatteverket is the is the authority that makes that decision. In Denmark, I'm fairly sure it's the it's the Kommuna who are the sort of front of house for the border service they call it for making these decisions. If you go to Finland, Norway, Iceland, I think it's a different authority altogether. Mm. So there's lots of different ways to do it. Um, of course. Uh, depending on people's types of work, I mean, I was listening to your discussion with Ivan Keen, hands-on in the brewery. Um, uh, I mean, that's very hands-on. The type of work that I do, I suppose, you know, I, I more work with my head than my hands uh, for, for good or for worse. So therefore, I'm able to do some of my work from home, which means I don't have to commute every day. Um, but that, of course, then triggers its own considerations vis-a-vis -vis the tax authorities. That, that um, was my next question, Graham, right? Because yeah. this is something that's of interest to people. If you live in Malmo, at some point, if you're any use of what you do, somebody will probably offer you a job in Copenhagen or vice versa, right? So when you get paid, uh, you know, like because there's pensions, there's social insurance contributions, you still might want to go to the dentist, not that anybody ever wants to go to the dentist. How does that work? Where do your taxes get paid? Which government gets your money? Uh, there's no simple answer to that, Philip, and I would hate to offer anybody <laughs> legal advice to anybody, but I'll give you some broad characterizations. I mean, firstly, um, uh, I, I didn't come to, to Sweden and then work in a cross-border situation right away. I was living and working in Denmark before moving. Um, and I, I moved across for family reasons, not for professional ones. Um, 
how it works is that if you're doing a work from a job that's hybrid, where you're partly at a place of work and partly working from home as I am today, I'm sitting in my home today, uh, you have to, if you're employed 100% in Denmark, you have to declare to your employer how many days you worked at home and how many days you were on site. And then at the end of every month, they then give you two different pay slips, one for the days that you worked in Denmark and one for the days you worked in Sweden. And now it's all subject to audit. So you have to obviously keep copies of your, your train tickets and everything else. But then your responsibility is when it comes to the tax here in both Denmark and Sweden, you have to both clear and in, in input the data for where you spent where and then your annual statements from both Denmark and Sweden will balance out to assure that you are taxed accordingly. It's a little bit more complicated for of course that people who have lots of different side jobs then it's, you start getting into difficult calculations about well how much work did you do how much did you get paid. In terms of pensions however uh, I mean the, the, the two very different pension systems um, if you have a tax number in both systems, a Persson number in Sweden or a CPR number in Denmark, you then uh, mostly fall into the one where you're employed based and you don't accrue pension benefits where you reside. But then there's obviously options to build up a pension in other ways, such as, I mean, without going into discussion about, you know, the ISK accounts, capital for checking accounts that we have in Sweden. There's slightly different ones in Denmark. Um, uh, but yeah, you there's a large responsibility, I would say, that falls on the individual to make sure that all their affairs are sorted out. Mm. Um, but if, I mean, for, for all intents and purposes, it works. The Danish system is highly digitalized. The Swedish system is getting there. Um, uh, but if you, if you find yourself... As a national of Ireland, living in one Nordic country and working in another, uh, you probably have to have your head screwed on anyway in order to overcome some of these. But they're all surmountable obstacles. No issue. Yeah. It, it sounds very difficult. And of course, I, I'm very much hoping that at this point in time, as we're talking, that you're getting paid in Danish crowns because uh, it would seem that the Swedish crown is sort of at the bottom right now. So does that make a difference to you? Is there a risk involved in that for you as well? There is absolutely when you get paid in in one currency and you move it into another. But look, uh, the the uh, the straw. I mean, let's just clarify something. I mean, Swedish kroner is a free floating currency. The Danish kroner is not. The policy of the Danish central bank uh, is to peg it more or less within. It's a very small percentage uh, to the euro. So therefore, I don't have to worry about currency fluctuations from Danish kroner to euro. But I do have to concern myself with fluctuations from the euro Danish kroner. To Swedish kroner. Mm. Um, at the moment, I'm obviously in a very beneficial situation. I have a have a thought in my mind for the people that live in um, that live in Copenhagen and um, work and uh, and work in Malmo because they're sort of on the bad side of the very weak Swedish kroner at the moment. But look, these things go up and down. Uh, I mean, there's there's been a significant percent for every one Danish crown when I first moved here. I think it was 1.4 Swedish crown. It's now over 1.15, 1.55. Uh, so that's a you know a significant percentage movement. So um, yeah, you have to factor it in, and then theoretically your 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 very base pay adjusts every month. But uh, as long as you're have a comfortable margin for yourself, uh, it, again something you have to consider. But in time. I, I would imagine the Swedish kroner, without being an economist, would would actually level out. Oh, so yeah. you just 
That's the thing. It's it's these fluctuations, they usually bounce back eventually. You know, there, there's been a span between the Danish, the Swedish, the Norwegian crown, and they usually come back to where they started once whatever yeah. turbulence passes yeah. off. One, one of the arguments I hear, though, is that, like, it's great for exports. It makes Swedish products and goods cheap. Uh, that might have been true once upon a time where, you know, goods were made through resources from a single country. But now you have a lot of companies today that would resource their products abroad for actual assembly in, uh, in Sweden, become Swedish goods, and therefore they have to buy abroad in order to make the good to sell so you know uh but look big business will speak when the time comes that uh, and the 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 rich banking will act accordingly exactly yeah we'll just wait on them now to ruin our summer with another decision here and there listen right. look uh, we've gone through the whole sort of thing of you know how you work and how you get paid and all that kind of thing but we have to sort of crack the question of how you wound up here in the first place because your background is in law and as you're a legal academic as well so this is something that you know an awful lot about how do you end up in a place like Denmark? Did you always want to be an academic? Did you ever want to go in and stand in front of a judge and plead your case? Or how do you end up in the kind of situation where you're living in Vekka and working in southern Denmark? Yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's not normal. And I... I, I... Uh, I, I will. I'm the first to admit that the first reason why I came, I was I was doing a, a master's degree in UCD in Belfield, and uh, um, at the same time, simultaneously, I, I was working as a parliamentary assistant in the Oireachtas in the Dáil. Uh, so I, I spent my days in in, uh, in, uh, in a building called Leinster House 2000, uh, which is annexed to Leinster House. Uh, I was working for a TD, uh, doing everything from communications to legislative work to uh, constituent outreach and so forth. And I was doing a master's full time at the same time. Now, a master's in UCD full time actually only entailed six hours of class a week, I think. So I was able to then, you know, just jump on the on the bus from Kildare Street out to Belfield and then come back to work. Uh, for my two-hour lectures, and um, but I but I but I had I had a niggle for something I wanted to do, I wanted to research more, um, and the University of Copenhagen were offering uh, a PhD fellowship in a subject area I was in, so I got in touch with the with the the professor, my my good mentor Hella Kunker, um, and uh, yeah, it was an opportunity. I was young, I was uh, single, no children then, uh, and so. I, I decided to make the leap. I did. I did a little bit of homework in advance. I talked to some people that knew people in in the field, and yeah, it seemed like a great opportunity. And uh, I, I did my PhD at the University of Copenhagen. That was the end, end of that. What was it that was the field of research for the PhD that that attracted you so much that you would want to move country to do it? Uh, well, uh, I suppose. Uh, there was a report, actually, we're recording this on the 27th of June. There was a report yesterday, published 26th of June, uh, by the Irish government. I just had a quick look at it last night about supports that are provided for people that are getting started doing academic work. I'm obviously now, that's long behind me. But in Ireland, it's sort of, the you get a, a stipend of, I think it's €16,000 a year to do a PhD, if you can get the stipend. Um, and that that's it. You're given maybe a desk at the library or a, a, a small space to work amongst other people. And, and that's it. You're very much a student, a PhD student. In Scandinavia, um, Sweden, Denmark, Norway have a, a very different model. You're a PhD fellow. So the fellowship, you are a fully paid member of staff. You're treated as faculty. You get the same laptop, iPad, phone, the whole shebang as 
a member of the faculty and it's fully paid. You get pension entitlements, you get everything that goes with it. So it's an employment relationship that you have with the university. Um, so, yeah, if you were offered a to do a PhD in Ireland and a PhD in Scandinavia, it's a bit of a no brainer. <laughs> yeah, you no, on that plane like a shot, you, basically. Well, it depends what you, I do. European Union law—that's my field of expertise. Um, so, therefore, you know, it doesn't really matter where I do my work; it's going to be relevant. Um, so, therefore, all other things being equal, uh, you have better conditions to do your work, and then, therefore, arguably, you you will have better research outcomes if you have the necessary supports that are there. Mm. Um, having a quick look at the report the government did yesterday, the, their solution or proposed solution of the report seems to be just throw a little bit more money at it. Uh, we can say that discussion for another day, but that's not going to solve itself. There needs to be a fundamental rethink. Uh, I remember being at a, an Irish embassy event uh, in Copenhagen. Oh, it was uh, it's when Cleana Manahan the was the Irish ambassador in Copenhagen, and she had uh, the provost from Trinity, the then provost from Trinity College over, um, and he had some meetings with uh, people from the university world that day, and he was giving an open talk that evening. And he was making the point that the amount of money that he has to work with with the number of students compared to say the university of copenhagen the university of southern denmark Aarhus university the, the, the sort of big universities here you know he said they're working with like three times the budget when you when you even it out for all the 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 staff numbers and student numbers and so forth so yeah irish universities majorly underfunded falling behind scandinavians have a much more broader approach, uh, prioritize research. There's a strong role for the public and private sector. Uh, so yeah, the, the models that they've created in Denmark and Sweden are, are I think, I mean, it's I call it the first of the first world uh, yeah. when it comes to a place for research and innovation. Um, but they, that's not to say they shouldn't rest on their laurels. There's always places to look and improve, but Ireland has some major steps to consider. Yeah, uh, before it gets itself to that place. This is the thing. It's a bit of a brain drain having sort of talented and <clears throat> intelligent people like yourself. And then, you know, when you get that offer, that 16 grand, and then all of a sudden, you know, the 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 faraway hills are much, much greener in Denmark for what you do, you know. And um, when you studied your undergraduate degree, was that in law? It was. It was. Yeah. Um, so EU law in particular, right? It seems to me to be, it's it's a brilliant idea because, you know, it's not like, you know, that law basically applies to the whole of the EU. So it's kind of a little bit more general maybe than, you know, criminal law or probate law or any of these other things that you could have specialised in. Um, but how much is the university work that you do sort of coloured by Denmark's experience of the EU, Ireland's experience of the EU, Brexit? Do you have sort of Irish EU baggage that you bring into it? Or is it, you know, do you have a different perception because of where you come from uh, i mean one of the things i i don't know if this is experience of a lot of other people irish people that come here but you know i don't come here to do the irish perspective of, e, of eu law i mean i like yourself i'm firmly based now in scandinavia here married in family and mortgage so you know i ain't going anywhere so therefore to come with it just with the irish eyes the whole time is not the way to go about it you have to look at it from the broader discipline of what eu law is what it seeks to do and how it works out in practice. Um, so, it, what 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 you what I do? If you were to anonymize the type of manuscripts and articles and research that I do, and you were to and also anonymize, say, let somebody, let's say somebody at um, oh, 
take a random university, let's say uh, uh, the EUI, the European University Institute in Florence, and you were to anonymize and compare our work on the same topic, you wouldn't necessarily be able to tell that, oh, that was done by an Irish person in Denmark, or this was done by a Portuguese researcher in Italy. You should, you, if we were doing the same topic and we approach it from our discipline's perspective, it should, in theory, make no difference. Um, what, one of the things that the greater trends, you could say, if I step back from the nitty gritty of EU law, is that EU law is now in every sector of the law. You cannot move without EU law being in its place. And that is for very explicit reasons, because that has been chosen by the, the political process to be the case. Now, when there's new developments in society, member states aren't taking the initiative anymore to do something themselves. They're now So COVID comes along, pan-European response. We need new privacy laws. We put in place GDPR. We then have artificial intelligence and how to regulate that. You know, Stockholm, Copenhagen, whoever, are not going to regulate themselves. They realize the trends here are bigger. We have to regulate this at EU level. So therefore, the, the, the way that laws are being shaped in our societies is increasingly Europeanized. Now, that's not to say there's a, there is, of course, room for the national political and legislative processes when it comes to the implementation and shaping how those laws are made and how they're amended and updated to reflect the times. But that's a broader change that I think we're um, uh, beginning to see. And you will see that amongst all areas of law. I mean, you mentioned just probate and, and criminal law there. I am sure if I look, I'm not, I'm not a probate lawyer, I'm not a criminal lawyer, but Criminal law, there's now increasingly a number of regulations in this field that now have to account for a list of EU crimes. Um, and uh, one of the things that 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 Denmark has is it has a little bit of an opt-out situation with respect to legislation in that field, but that they're sort of that's the legal nuances to account for a legal situation. But by and large, they make their national law conform in the place where they're not obliged to. Yeah, there's lots of it's a it's a, it's a great time to be an EU lawyer actually because there, there's lots of things to talk about, so many legal developments, so many that it's I, th I think it's increasingly difficult to be a generalist. Incre increasingly, that everyone is going to have to be that does law also an EU lawyer. I mean, you go to any big law firm now in the in the capital cities, they don't just have the traditional fields of competition law and state aid law. They've data teams, privacy teams trade teams, restrictive measures and sanctions, uh, all areas of practice, investment law and everything. The EU law is coming into all fields. And yeah, uh, and, and I enjoy it. I, I mean, I've, I've been I've been doing this for 10 years now. And, uh, you know, sometimes people take a keen interest in the EU law because of maybe political, geopolitical developments. But um, yeah, there's then there's people like me that are uh, working away in the background who are to be called upon when necessary. In the minutiae of these things, you know. I just wanted to grab you on something there, Greg, because you mentioned uh, what EU law is and what it's for, right? Because during Brexit and, you know, the political debates that happen at the moment, we hear all this thing about sovereignty and, oh, you know, we're being dictated to from Brussels and that kind of thing. And that tends to ignore the whole point of the EU and the good things that it's brought out. So if you were to sort of sum up, what's the elevator pitch for EU law? And why is it good that we do these things on a pan-European level rather than, you know, the whatever 20, 30-odd member states deciding for themselves? Uh, well, 
Well, for, well, I would say the first thing of a of a legal academic is is not to sell the idea of EU law. Actually, we're there to you know not promote it, but then to analyze it through our own analytical lenses. Um, so I, I I wouldn't like to sell it, but from the point of view of taking of researching and writing about it, obviously I have a preference for it. Um, how, how to sell i mean one of the things that's commonly said is that the eu is misunderstood i fully agree everybody in swedish schools has thought you know you have the commune you have your members that you elect there in the elections then you then have people at the riksdag who you vote for every once in a while next june uh, uh, in less than 12 months time we're all going to be going to the polls to vote for our members of the european parliament for the 2024 to 2029 term People are familiar with that form of democracy. Then you ask them how EU law is decided, and no one really knows uh, unless they're, you know, have looked into it like me, where there's the European Commission who propose legislation, and then it's the councils, which is the member state governments and the European Parliament come together and agree on a text to go forward. Uh, so that process is the, the actual way law is made is not understood. And, and there has to be more of that. There's there's initiatives like Europe Day, which is the 9th of May every year, which seeks to improve these things. Um, but yeah, it's the European institutions always try to do outreach events to get a greater understanding of processes. Um, I would say many national governments are very good at nationalizing successes and Europeanizing failures. Uh, and um, actually, you know, they need to exercise and be it needs to be acknowledged for the fact that actually if there is successes uh there's by and large been european aspects to that too and i need and then the member states need to own some of their failures themselves um yeah i don't i don't, I don't know what i could say because i'm not the salesperson for the european commission you yeah, have no, to get... but it was just to get an idea of what the, what the point and the principles that underpin it are so like you know uh, obviously, the whole idea of, you know, freedom of movement is one thing that, you know, it's you'd almost put in an inverted commas because it's not really free. You have to have the permission to reside or to be able to move in Schengen areas and that kind of thing, you know. And but it all obviously has it's made it possible for you to live in Sweden, work in Denmark, travel to Ireland whenever you want and the rest of the member states. So it's just finding that sort of balance between what the, what the point of it is. And then, you know, as you mentioned as well, the failures of it as well. There are certain places where, where it doesn't work, you know. Are there any specific areas where you would say uh, oh, oh okay this is of interest to me because EU law like any law but you know in saying that you know you're a lawyer it's very very broad what, what would your area of specialization be if you had to pick one the just the my area I've sort of three main areas of EU law that I first is EU constitutional law so the institutional dynamics of the union the basic legal principles that underlie it that's one area the second area would be the internal market so that's freedom of goods freedom of workers freedom of capital freedom of establishment freedom to provide services all of that and then the third leg is EU external relations law so how the EU as a legal polity as a whole interacts with the wider world uh, on a legal basis uh, on 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 for legal arrangements like treaties and international agreements. Just to come back to the, the, your your comment though on on EU or free movement law not actually being free, I mean I somewhat agree with that. I, for someone in, for someone who you know goes to Dublin Airport to with their suitcase take up life in another EU country, um, it, there's lots of I would say hindrances you meet. You have to get a social security number, an insurance number in the other state. You then have to get 
into the digital system like the bank ED system we have in Sweden or the MIT ED system in Denmark. Uh, you have to uh, reestablish your life where you've no insurance history, no credit history, all the rest of it. So there's lots of hidden obstacles, you could say. But the, but the principles, by and large, are still there. If you are if you are an Irish passport holder and you show up in uh, in Italy and you say, look, I want to uh, start renting an apartment in Milan, uh, this, as long as you uh, have enough resources, you can actually do so. If you want to uh, buy goods online from Spain and get them shipped here, there's no customs charges that apply because the European Union is a customs union. Um, there's if you want to set up a company in Milan and then set up a, a subsidiary or a branch or an agency in Ireland, you can all do that. The the, the, the company's registry office in, in Dublin cannot stop you from doing that. So there's actually lots of benefits across that, that people have in everyday life that they don't fully realize. And when, in Denmark, my, I always tell my students, you know, you know, uh, Denmark is famously is very high high car taxes. So cars in Denmark are extremely expensive. Uh, they have this thing called Regstengsavgift, which is a one hundred and five percent tax on the first, I think, two or three hundred thousand kroner, and then a one hundred and near fifty percent charge above that in a, in another band. And they're extremely expensive. And say to my students, okay, uh, cars are like that. Is that compatible with EU law? Uh, and the answer is, is yes, it is. Despite the fact that it's a, say, a comparatively very high tax, there's no actual restriction there because Denmark doesn't manufacture any cars. So therefore, every car that you see on the road in Denmark is imported. Same in Ireland. We don't make cars in Ireland. So therefore, every single car imported, that, that in most cases benefits from the free movement of goods internal market law a good that comes in from japan or the united states or china china's now making cars therefore boom that comes in under either wto law or an international agreement of the eu and therefore it's external relations law so there's there's, there's law there embedded in the in the workings of everyday life yet it's not really maybe understood as being an eu matter but it is. Yeah. It's yeah. fascinating because uh, that was one of those days, going back 20 years when I used to be up and down to Copenhagen working a couple of days a week. And uh, that was one of the things that like, you know, a friend of mine who he collected me to bring me playing football one Monday night in the Carlsberg Brewery. And this was a very successful fella. And he turned up in this tiny little car that, you know, you might expect my mother to be driving. I was going, what's this? And he goes, oh man. And he explained that whole sort of tax situation with cars. I thought, okay, I get it, you know. Um, one of the reasons you and I began uh, talking is because you've heard some of the episodes I did with the micro brewers here in Sweden. And we've talked about the concept of gourds for shelling, which is basically if you produce something on site that you should be able to sell it maybe in limited amounts to people passing by, uh, you know, to be visitors to your farm or to your brewery or that kind of thing. And you kind of cut that off at the ankles when you messaged me. You said, look, that's just not going to be possible under EU law. Could you explain, Graham, why you don't think that that or why that may prove to be impossible, that they might have to change the law completely in Sweden and just get rid of system as if that was to happen? Yeah, I suppose I should declare my interest first and foremost. Uh, last year, uh, CEPS, the Swedish Institute for European Policy Studies, uh, asked me to write a report on the free movement of goods alcohol, sustainable logit, good for shelling, and EU law, effectively. Uh, so it was, it was meant to be a short, you know, five-page briefer. It turned into a 50-page 
report. Um, so that so that document was published uh, last August, I believe, and that's available on the CFS's website. They can download for free. Um, and it's a piece of work that I did over several months where I basically examined all the legal issues. Uh, for some of the non-Swedish or Nordic listeners, uh, people should know that Sustainable Augit is a state alcohol monopoly. If you want to buy alcohol goods that's not uh, focal or or uh, beer that's three point five percent. Any any alcohol content over three four five percent has to be sold in a state run store. They have the same in Finland, uh, Alco. Same in Norway, alcohol mono- or what's it called V monopoly. Um, Denmark has has no restriction on selling of alcohol goods. Um, Sweden or the Swedish government, there's been a proposition put out by several governments over ten years now. They'd want to allow microbrewers to sell their goods on site at the place where they make the goods from their own stores. That would obviously be in conflict with the system below its rule, which is that all goods have to be sold in their stores. And the justification that's constantly put forth for sustainable its existence is public health. to so reduce the supply of alcohol in society um, uh, because it causes harm. Um, if you and that and, and the, if you look at sustainable logging and go into a store, I, I did a, bit, a small little social experiment uh, one evening. If you go into a sustainable logging store, you will notice certain things about how it's done. The literature that you can they they have on the sides of the aisles is all related to what goods they sell go with what types of food. Therefore, it's to be consumed with other things and not a consumption activity in and of itself. Secondly, you won't see any special offers. No discounted prices, no two-for-ones, etc. Thirdly, you won't see any fridges. So therefore, the goods are not designed to be consumed the minute you walk out the door after buying it. And fourthly, you won't see any special section for Swedish beers, Swedish spirits, and so forth. It's all mixed in amongst all the other goods. That is all done to be in compliance with EU law. Because if you have the free movement of goods in the European Union... All goods have to be treated equally. So therefore, whether it's a Swedish beer or a Danish beer, it should by and large be in subject to the same conditions, same tax that applied, same opportunities for it to be sold and so forth. Now, if you introduce, as has been considered for over 10 years, good for shelling, that in principle means they only want to allow Swedish made goods be subject to good for shelling. So let's take the example of uh, Ivan Keane, who you had on, and his microbrewery. They they want he doesn't the government is not proposing he just be able to sell the goods at his production facility that would be linked to a tasting activity or a tour of the premises of some kind. Okay, so therefore the state wants to exclude all other producers from the market. So therefore, if I have a microbrewery in Denmark, that means that. I can't sell my beer in Sweden outside of Sustainable Agat, but Ivan Keane can. That 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 is an infringement of the free movement of goods. The other thing is that if you're then making an exception to Sustainable Agat, that means Sustainable Agat is not a monopoly anymore. Therefore, in principle, your local Ica, your local Willys, your local Lidl, your local 7-Eleven, your Pressboon, they should also be able to sell beer and alcohol products just like anywhere else. Um... I'm I'm sort of summarizing the points I made in the written report, which is much more coherent and substantive than what I'm saying out out loud. But that that they there are some problems there, and uh, one of the arguments you might hear, oh, well, look, 
the people I met buying beer at a microbrewery is just such a small amount of people that it makes no blind bit of difference. That that might be true, but the point is with free movement, there's no threshold. Once if if you, if it's an obstacle, it is an obstacle. Um, why should uh, Ivan Keane, who makes beer, be, be able to sell alcohol, but yet microbrewers in Germany, in in uh, in Austria, in Denmark, why should they not be entitled to the same rights and privileges? Uh, so therefore. I would argue that if Sweden was to legislate to provide for good for shelling, they would they can perfectly do that, but then you need to get rid of the state monopoly of sustainable logit. You can keep sustainable logit, but then have it in competition with others. And the, the exact precedent we have for this, you might remember this, Philip, because you've been around these parts longer than me, is Apotecus. Right? Yes, the, the state pharmacies, yeah. The state pharmacies, exactly. State pharmacies. Uh, was challenged for its lawfulness in 2002. Uh, it went all the way to the EU court, and the top EU court said, no, the way Sweden runs its monopolies is incompatible with the free movement of goods. Now, what did that mean? Did that have to mean that Sweden has to get rid of its its uh, pharmacy? No, they had a choice. They could have changed it to a model like Sustainable Logit, where they sell all types of goods within it, and everyone has the opportunity to sell goods into that market, or they could liberalise it. And the state chose to liberalise it. Now you still have the apotheket. I don't know quite sure which part of the state is the shareholder now, but now you have private operators, ICA apothecates and, and, and so forth. So you have other competitors in the market that provide pharmace pharmaceutical goods to the consumers. Has the sky fallen in with respect to the pharmacy market? I would argue no. Um, and therefore, we also have a situation in Denmark where goods are sold everywhere and they have the same sort of approach towards alcohol consumption. I mean, let's face it, uh, uh, Swedish alcohol drinkers are not a whole lot different today to other societies in Europe, the days of everyone uh, uh, drinking the equivalent of putchin, uh from the from the local farm is long gone. And the other argument I hear sometimes on, uh, on sustainable logging is that, oh, well, will Finland have God for shelling? Uh, and uh, there's some nuances to that claim that I hear. In Finland, yes, you can go to uh, a farmyard and buy like a niche berry wine that they sell. Uh, but it does not entail uh, very common types of goods like spirits or beer, which are what are proposed to be open in the Swedish model. And furthermore, those niche wine berries, they're not really sold anywhere else. So it's only finished type of goods that are for sale anyway. There's no competing goods necessarily in other markets. The European Commission actually said to Finland, that is a violation of EU law if you do that. And the Finns did it anyway. And so far, they haven't found themselves in a court case yet. But, but I, I'm absolutely sure that the minute... We have Sweden changing its laws around the sale of alcohol. There's going to be a legal challenge to it because there was a legal challenge to it in Landskrona in 1995 within weeks of e Sweden joining the EU, which gave us the case called Franzen, which approved the a lawfulness of sustainable logit as it then stood at certain aspects of it. But if Sweden changes code for shelling it, they're opening up a Pandora's box. All of a sudden, then they will have to allow new competitors to sell into the market like supermarkets, or they will um, just sell sustainable logs to the private market or get rid of the company altogether. Mm. So 
yeah, microbreweries want it, but they have to be aware that they will be open themselves to competition and sustainable audit, uh, and the benefits they might uh, accrue from it, like the, the the distribution to the supply chain and so forth, are subject to change. Uh, and the report, the Utrechtning, that the Swedish government report uh, that they they produced most recently, uh, that was published in twenty twenty one, I would call it a very poor work of uh, legal of legal analysis when it comes to the EU legal aspects of it, because they more or less said, well, even if it's unlawful, we can revert to the situation that it is now. I'm not sure that's true. You don't, uh, you don't so, think that if they were to change this, right, and then all of a sudden the country is awash with gargle and people are sleeping in the streets, that kind of thing, you don't think that that genie can go back into the bottle, no? Well, I mean, the, you can, of course, reintroduce a monopoly, but at the same time then... People have gotten a taste for something else. I mean, just, well, the, uh, the what the problem is, I would say, that they want their cake and eat it too. <laughs> they want to keep a state monopoly, but then want to allow Swedish good beer manufacturers to also sell outside the monopoly. Um, you cannot square that situation under EU law. Basically, you will have to allow everybody in if you allow Swedish goods, Swedish microbrewers to, to sell. Yeah. effectively um so yeah they they can keep the status quo or they can bring it into line with, with eu law more yeah. more broadly if, and, and allow microbrewers to sell uh and it doesn't matter if they try link it with a, a study visit it really doesn't matter they're still allowing an exception therefore sustainable blog cannot be a state monopoly anymore so so the tasting or the study visit that's lipstick on the pig it makes no difference whatsoever to the legality of these things 100 percent correct philip yeah, yeah. Um, no, I hate to do this to an academic because I almost know what the answer is going to be, right? If you look in your crystal ball and you look at what's previously happened with similar cases, as in the case of Finland that you mentioned, that kind of thing, mm. sometimes you see things like when Sweden joined the EU in 1995, like that Francien case in Lanskona in 1995, and you see, okay, this is not going to last, right? Eventually, somebody's going to take a case. It's going to take donkey's years, going to go through the courts, but ultimately, the, the winds are blowing in the direction that the system will it is not going to exist in 10 or 15 years or maybe it will how do you see that what would it take is it even possible for you know for a, a private citizen or for an Ivan Keane to take a case against the state bring it through the EU courts and then for the EU courts to say yeah actually this fella should be allowed to sell his beer that's exactly how we got the Franzen case. Franzen was about a gentleman called Harry Franzen who started selling wine he imported from Denmark himself. Um, we we actually have some cases coming through the Swedish courts at the moment. Um, it, it, people might know that if you that you can buy wine online from other EU member states and get it shipped to Sweden outside of Sustainable Oil. There's been a company, uh, and I'll give them the name because they're the one pushing the case, they're called WineFinder. Uh, if you go to winefinder.se, and, and I've no affiliation to WineFinder at all, um, they uh, they you can go online, you can order different types of wine, and then through this checkout process, you say, okay, um, who do you want to ship the goods? And you pick a number of different transport providers. You pick the time you want it delivered. And hey, presto, they pack the goods at their warehouse in some other EU member state. And then someone shows up at your door here in Sweden, a delivery man wants to check your ID, make sure you're over the age to purchase uh, such goods, which is 20 in Sweden. And um, uh, they do now, Winefinder obviously market those goods to Swedish customers on their website. Sustainable Agat have taken issue with this and said, uh, this, we don't believe the way they act is in conformity with the monopoly rights of Sustainable Agat. 
the the case is currently up. It's been decided by the Patent and Market Court Court of Appeal, uh, and it's been decided in favor of Winefinder, which is, which is interesting because at first instance at the at the Patent and Market Court first instance, uh, Belog has won, um, and now it's been overturned by the Patent and Market Court of Appeal, and now permission has been granted by the parties to appeal the case to the Supreme Court. Uh, Swedish Supreme Court. I would argue now that is a fundamental test about the rules about distance selling of alcohol goods. Um, uh, you you could see, and you might very well argue if you want to get into the legal nuances, that the Swedish Supreme Court might be under an obligation to refer the matter to the EU court to be decided. Uh, but that's these are cases that Systembolag are pushing themselves to preserve their commercial rights. Obviously, companies like Winefinder are undermining their commercial uh, interests uh, rather than trying to, say, protect the public health. Um, yeah, so Systemblog so pushing that line of litigation is quite interesting. You then also, um, if there's any legal changes to any rules about God for shelling, um, you will get another case. I'm 100% certain of it. I, I could start selling cans of uh, Danish craft beer on my driveway here in Vekwa and get prosecuted, and I could be the test case. Um, there, there's, there's lots of opportunities here, but I mean, it's, it's. I would say this issue, when it comes to broader EU law, is, is, is quite niche. You know, and most EU member states don't have these rules about alcohol selling. Then, then Sweden and and Finland are, are the the exception in this regard. Um, but it is. A curious one for the for the lawyers like me to look into all the nuances. Yeah. One of the things that just struck me there as you were speaking, Graham, was uh, I think that there's moves underway at the moment in certain EU states, and for some reason Germany rings a bell, right? And this is around loosening the rules around marijuana, right? Now, I think in Germany you can join a club and a few people can grow some plants and they can smoke away and do their thing, right? But I was just thinking of that in terms of a wine finder for that kind of thing. If that sort of thing becomes legal in Germany, does that create a pressure? Does it create a bubble that at some point these things will be tested before the EU courts. Because, like, we've had... Drugs have been decriminalised in Portugal for a long time, which is not the same thing as being legalised, right? Um, it's... You can say... There's, there's shops all over America now in, I don't know, maybe 27 states where marijuana and sale of marijuana has been legalised. And that's... So is that the kind of thing that you see happening? Is that the purpose of EU law and the testing of EU law to see what can be made legal and what can be, be done in terms of trade? I mean, we should make a distinction uh, between what we call positive EU law and negative EU law. So positive EU law is like the adoption of EU legislation. So the new adoption of the Artificial Intelligence Act, the adoption of the General Data Protection Regulation. Therefore, it's very prescriptive law and lawmaking, just like the way there is prescriptive national law. That That's sort of the new way of doing things. The old way of regulating matters, which is the free movement aspect, this isn't, well, I mean, free movement of goods uh, in the treaties in Article 34 when it comes to imports merely says something, it says, it's one sentence. It says measures, uh, quantitative restrictions and measures having equivalent effect shall be prohibited between member states. That's it. Uh, now, there's exceptions to that. The exception, of course, one of the written exceptions written in the subsequent Article 36 says public health. So therefore, you know, can, uh, if I buy a book, if I buy a book online and I get it shipped from Germany to Denmark and this, and and uh, Denmark says, no, you can't bring that book in, 
they, Denmark will have to give a reason for it. They can't say public health. The book can't be bad for my health necessarily. Uh, if, however, I go online and order, uh, you know, uh, a rate load of drugs that I might be able to buy in Germany, but then I'm not allowed to buy in Denmark and Denmark invokes public health, that is possible. Uh, so member states are free to experiment with legal regulation. And in principle, then, as another state must recognize the possibility uh, most of those standards, unless there's a specific exception for it. With drugs so far, by and large, the case is that a member state wouldn't have a problem trying to invoke that justification. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore, no, there is no free movement of drugs in the European Union. Um, but, but would the onus then be on them, Graham, to prove their public health case, as it is with System Belogat, where they say, look, if we allow free... So it's up to them then to prove their case. We have, we have a doctrine in the EU law called mutual recognition. If if the book I bought online in Germany is made according to German standards and is sold in Germany, the, the that book therefore benefits from the principle of mutual recognition. That and that is to say that all states must recognize that standard accordingly. The the actual the case that we that that principle came from is an alcohol case actually. And I'll give you I'll give you the facts because it's a bit of a funny one. Uh, I'm not a fan of fruit liquor, um, but there's a fruit liquor uh, that you can buy in France called Cassis. Yes, Cassis from Dijon, Cassis de Dijon, uh, and it is twenty percent alcohol content, I believe. Somebody went to bring that into import into Germany and Germany said no 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 you can't bring you can't sell something as fruit liquor in Germany because German rules say if something is to be a fruit liquor it has to have 25% alcohol content in other words your fruit liquor is too weak you need to make it stronger um and uh, th- that was tested does then the fruit liquor have to conform to the French standard the German standard the Italian standard the Spanish standard in order to benefit from free moon and the EU court said no if it's made according to one standard other states must recognize that standard so as long as it's made according to the French standard it cannot just be any subject to no standard it has to be subject to the standard of where it's made so that's the mutual recognition principle. And that has, in principle, unleashed the possibility for the free movement of goods. Uh, most states will have rules around alcohol and, and highly regulated goods. But when it comes to normal everyday book, uh, things like books that I mentioned, states don't really have standards about them as long as they're safe. Mm. And there is sort of EU, we always hear about the health and safety thing around EU law, that kind of thing. So most will be covered by sort of EU level standards then for, you know, machinery or for cars or seatbelts. Precisely, precisely. For for things like that, the EU legislature then has adopted legislation to harmonise some levels of standards, Mm -hmm. uh, of course. And and harmonisation is an ongoing process, but where there's no harmonisation, you then fall back on the free movement principle and the mutual recognition doctrine that I've just mentioned. Yeah. Um, one final question for you. I could talk about this all day just because the whole thing is so fascinating, right? Who legislates the legislators, right? Is it just us as voters, the people who choose these people who sit and make these things? Is that the sort of final backstop or is it the Supreme Court? Who do we have to put our trust in that the EU is making laws that are fair to Ivan Keane and fair to Carlsberg and fair to Germany and Ireland and Sweden and Denmark? Who do we turn to to make sure that these laws are enforced fairly? There's many ways. I mean, I, there's a book coming out in September actually on uh, uh, the enforcement of EU law. There's there's obviously different ways you go about it. There's public enforcement and private enforcement. Um, private enforcement is uh, the individual trying to invoke rights under EU law. So therefore, um, Franz, Franzen in 1995 in Karlskrona more or less said, 
you know, I want to invoke my right to move goods across the European Union and sell them. Um, that's that, and therefore he invoked his right, individual right, to go before an independent Swedish court, who then asked for the assistance of the EU court. Now, one of the things about uh, why EU law is so concerned with rights of in free movement situations is that normally people are not democratically empowered who are exercising free movement. So, for example, uh, you know, you can only vote in Riksdag elections if you're a Swedish citizen. doesn't matter how long you've lived here or if you're an EU citizen or not, you can't do it. Uh, and therefore, if you've no democratic rights, you have you have legal rights. Um, you also then have the role of the European Commission as a, as a public enforcer. The European Commission oversee the implementation of implemented EU law. But also, critically, is that if Sweden goes to amend any of the laws around alcohol selling, to come back to the main topic that we want to discuss today, uh, they have to know, pre-notify in advance the draft of they, what they propose uh, to change in national law to the European Union, because then the European Union will want to look and consider what implications that will have for its conformity with broader EU law. And obviously, this one, for aforementioned reasons, raises a red flag. So there's, lot, there's lots of different ways to go about it and, and oversee laws. People have rights, um, access to independent courts. We're, we're lucky so far to live in a, in a in a society in Denmark and Sweden that are, you know, open, democratic, where we can have discussions and we can rely upon an independent judiciary uh, to keep the powers in check. Uh, but, you know, there's parts of pl places in Europe now where those possibilities uh, to have those rights protected through the courts are uh, are being undermined. So, uh, yeah, that's why independent courts are so important. It's, it's almost like a soap opera in its own way, you know, that these things are happening behind the scenes. And yet they do actually have an effect on most of us as European citizens. Graham, we're going to have to leave it there because, you know, what we will do, though, is you have hereby been appointed this podcast's European law correspondent. So we may get back to you if any of these things are, are happening in the future, especially around gourds for shelling or that. But for now, Graham, in Vecra, thank you so much for speaking to me. Cheers. There you go. That was the ever so erudite and educated uh, Graham Butler there explaining the finer points of the law to me. And it's always a fascinating subject to think about uh, because of, you know, you kind of go around the place thinking, well, that doesn't have any effect on my life. And yet so many of these things do, especially if you're Ivan Keane and you're trying to sell a few beers or if you're Kieran Blake and you're trying to sell a few beers uh, off your little farm with your gourds for shelling and that kind of thing. A fascinating subject and the amount of thought that goes into these things and the, sort of the arguments that I had uh, behind the scenes while these things are being drafted is something that has always fascinated me and the reasons and the cultural context behind all these things and sure Jesus you'd have a bit of crack right uh, given that we're having the kind of rainy summer that we're having there will be that podcast next week the interview is already recorded I'll let you in a little secret right the interview is with Debug okay so go look up Debug on Instagram and you'll get some taste of what you're going to get next week ahead of the Pride Parade which is in Stockholm on August 5th uh, I'll have the details about that when it's starting on the podcast but for now and for this week I hope you're still enjoying your summer I want you to look after you as ourselves look after one another and I'll be back again next week with Debug on another episode of the Irish in Sweden podcast good luck <laughs> <laughs>